Welcome in everyone to Flavor Footy. My name is Matt Baker and do not adjust your audio. This is in fact a cold open for a very special reason though. I know I said on the last flyover that we were done for 2023 unless something big happened and as happenstance would have it, something big did happen, but we were going to wait until January to talk about it. However, Brendan Weesey from the Big 550 KTRS graciously invited Phil Grooms and myself to join him for kind of a special year-end recap look ahead on their Soccer in the Lou show on Tuesdays. So what we're bringing to you today is that exact show. This aired on the Big 550 KTRS Tuesday night, December 26th, and we're bringing it to you in full on Flyover Footy. What you're going to hear is a kind of a full recap of 2023, some, some brief moments, as well as a look ahead, super draft information, and the one thing you're not going to hear though because the news broke as we were recording it is that St. Louis City does have a new fullback acquiring Tomas Totland the Norwegian American dual national right back from Swedish first division club BK Haken for an undisclosed transfer fee rumored to be in the 500,000 euro range Totland has signed a three-year deal with the club option for 2027 Quoting from Lutz Fennenstiel in the press release, we are excited to bring Tomas to St. Louis after a lot of interest from European and MLS teams. He comes to our team with experience at a high level, including playing in both Champions League and Europa League matches this season. And along with his experience, he's well-rounded in both the attacking and defending phases. Those aforementioned teams in Europe, we hear he uh, had garnered interest from Bundesliga teams. He had Inter-Miami and the Philadelphia Union interested in him in MLS. So a lot of interest in this in this player, Tomas Totland, coming to us from Europe. And like I said, you're not going to hear about this on Soccer in the Loose, so I wanted to give a little bit more information before we go into that. Totland has been uh, scouted a little bit because he ha- he's in the U.S. national team pool. He's been called an exciting player with good attitudes on and off the field, a good offensive fullback, smart with power, speed, a solid 1v1 defender. He's called, quote, a true modern fullback. He's often more present in the final third than in his own defensive half with a history of scoring in all manner of ways. There's a lot to like about Totland in what he's going to bring to this roster and how that's going to shake out with the depth chart. What he brings from a historical perspective is that he was in the Norwegian youth national team, earning caps at the under 18, under 20, under 21 sides, tallying seven total appearances, including an appearance at the U20 World Cup in 2019. He's got a lot of experience with professionals leagues. He comes from five professional seasons at Norway with three different clubs, quickly making his way up the ladder there. And what St. Louis is looking to have from him is a player who does not take up an international slot, which is huge for MLS, as well as that two-way player on the fullback side. He has been playing this season with Hawken as a left back due to some injuries. He is a right back by trade, so his flexibility is something exciting that St. Louis has to offer. We're going to dive into Totland and, and a lot more when we start up flyover at the beginning of the year in 2024. But because that's not covered in Soccer in the Lou and what you're about to listen to, I wanted to give you a brief recap of Totland. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to Flyover. Enjoy soccer in the Lou, and we'll see you in 2024. Here it's our year in review and year look ahead. Soccer in the Lou on the Big 550 KTRS. 
and want to welcome in a couple of our colleagues that you hear weekly during the season on the Flyover Footy Podcast, Matt Baker, Phil Grooms, and it's been fun. We had a couple of opportunities during the season to do this little roundtable on the program. We've got a little extended time tonight, guys. I appreciate you being here during the holiday season. How are we all doing? Doing great. Thrilled to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is going to be fun, and I know we're in what ultimately turns out to be a very brief hiatus for the Flyover Footy podcast because heck, training camp is right around the corner. So I think, Matt, what at the end of the day, you might you guys might wind up with like two or three weekends where you where you, where you didn't have a show. Yeah, it was some um, something crazy this year, like seventy shows that we did. Oh it was gosh. absolutely ridiculous. And even when we tell ourselves, all right, we're going to be done for a month or for the rest <laughs> of the year, something ends up happening, and a forty-five minute pods needed, and you just have to you have to get things out there if for your right. own benefit of wanting to talk about it. Well, now we've got a little more. There is space in between since the season ended, and we've had a lot of development since we're going to be able to get into the new schedule, the the draft, as the roster starts to come together. But, fellas, I'm interested in your first take on just what what you think City and, and what maybe they learned from a regular season that put them at the top of the Western Conference to a playoff that had them out after two matches getting swept by Sporting KC to kind of shut the shut the dream down at a at a, at a potential expansion season championship run Matt what what now like I said with with some space in between what what do you think Cities learned. What what have we learned? Maybe about uh, a franchise that took the city by storm, but uh, had a had a much quicker exit than we all imagined. I think we, as a fan base, as a city, have learned to trust Lutz and Bradley Carnell. We we went into this season with the success that Lutz had brought to the academy and to City Two, and all the hype and all the touting and all the expectations that were across the board, but. Through a difficult regular season in MLS that you add in two additional tournaments that they played in the U.S. Open Cup and Leagues Cup, this team, to come through it first place in the Western Conference in the regular season, that is an unreal accomplishment. And it 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 gives credit and it gives some leeway to moves that Bradley and Lutz have made and will make. But for them and for the club, I think they've learned more than anything that they have an, an opportunity to build upon a, a regular season that was for the history books in such a meaningful way. Lutz has talked about this five-year plan, and last year being in year three of that five-year plan that he spoke of after having built the Academy, City 2, and now City, he can see what you need to do, what you need to change to roll with the punches of an MLS season, to adapt, to be able to fight back against these teams when they learn how to counter your pressing style, how they learn to fight against it, you know what you need to do. You know some tactical differences that you can employ. You know some different types of players you can bring on. And you know the depth in certain areas that you need to be able to be more competitive and more successful going into next season. And I think, Matt, I'm glad you started because my mind will never stop thinking about all of these variables in, in my head. And I think you mentioned uh, one of them that's really big that, you know, maybe it's a long season. And what do we do when teams learn how to counter 
our uh, style of play. And I think um, it is a long season. That's definitely a variable. Will City want to rotate more? Will there be a deeper roster? Are we going to run out of gas at the end of the season? Was that the problem? Another variable is just that perhaps on the brightest side possible, we just faced the team that got us the most in a lot of ways, and that is in Sporting Kansas City. They lost to us playing their style, and then they switched it up in the playoffs, and it worked every single time. As Matt was alluding to, teams that learned how to play against City. And so does City have another tactic, or do they get better at other tactics rather than doubling down on the press? Do they learn how to play against a team that bunkers in and uh, waits for you to possess the ball? And then um, perhaps it's just a matter of, of getting better players in year two. Um, better tactics in, in, in guessing how to play better in the final third and just that progression, the, the revolution of, of evolution rather of play that St. Louis is going to have to get that any club gets as they learn and grow from season to season. You talk about getting better players. How do you get better players when the, the, the season comes around so quickly. You talk about, I think for a lot of folks in St. Louis, you think about in professional sports and the amount of time you have in an offseason to make moves. Uh, generally, you have in the neighborhood of, uh, what, around maybe four, maybe four and a half months to, to to figure that out and put it all together. Here we are, guys. Uh, it feels like the season just ended, and in a way it did because the MLS Cup just ended a couple weeks ago. City is in training camp in a couple weeks for the Champions Cup. So uh, we're going to talk about the draft and, and all that, but it feels like there's such a small window to try and and better yourself. And the fact that here we are just a few weeks away from camp, is are there realistic expectations that there are still moves to be made? There are because there's open roster slots. And you have an MLS, an MLS team in general struggles with all the competitions because of the finite number of roster slots available. There's 30. And with two players on loan, Selmer Pedro and Isak Jensen, until next June, St. Louis has about four open roster slots still that they can fill, even after the Super Draft, with the expectation that Jose Kojima will be the one player signed to the city roster, you have four open roster slots. And that provides some flexibility for Lutz to still make a move or two. And you look to some key positions like center back, left left back, and maybe another attacker that can help to shift things. And in certain areas, it's depth to provide cover for some of these different tournaments. But in some aspects, you can really look at this as an opportunity to add on to some areas that you're strong at, you, you perceive to be strong at, like the attacking midfield, yeah. and potentially put it over the top. Like I would I would say that our, our best 11, if you looked at the paper right now, is relatively strong if everybody's healthy. And that, that includes bringing back Rasmus Alm. That includes a healthy Joachim Nilsson in all these different positions. So there are, there are a few areas that you really think you can add a player to markedly improve what's on the roster, but then elsewhere you look to say, if you're going to add somebody at striker, or if you're going to add somebody to a right mid position, you're going to need to sign somebody who is a difference maker from day one over the top of guys like Alm or Nico Joachini, where you're strong, but you can get stronger. The question is, how, mu- how much movement is Lutz and Bradley going to make 
to what's existing because there have been a lot of talk about how excited they are to bring back the core and to have uh, a second act of the same guys who ran this out and to show how much they've they've grown, they've gelled, and they've learned from each other. Guys like Edu Leuven, who we heard at the end of last season, had been playing relatively out of position, maybe had a misunderstanding of what his responsibilities were in certain areas, certain games. And so you look to shore up those in addition to bringing back guys like Erasmus Alm. I point to him as a potential difference maker early in the season because we were without him late, and that was no coincidence to me in how we started to struggle a little bit at at the end of the season. And I feel like Leuven, to me, represents the guy that learned along with all of us, and I'm sure with Lutz and Bradley, the the machinations of a MLS season. And I think Leuven, at the end, was, was talking about, you know, this was a really long season, and, and we were trying to kind of feel our way through that. For a guy like Leuven, are, are you, are you Phil, in, in, as intrigued by what he could be year two as he's got that knowledge now. He's done it. He's got a year of doing it on the field to where, I mean, you could argue there was an argument for the first half of the year. He's this team's MVP. And now he's got a little more knowledge of how do I take care of my body throughout the the rigors of an MLS season. There's an argument to be made. He could be even better next year with that knowledge. I think he will be. And something I realized as you guys were talking is that um, Leuven, the year before he came to City, I was worried about him coming in, Matt. And and you were dead right all along. You were most excited about Leuven the whole time. And I was worried because he was a sub for his team in the Bundesliga, Bochum. And um, he didn't play a lot. And I thought, well, if he can't start in Bundesliga, Bundesliga is not so much better than MLS that a substitute player is going to come in and be the person that we build our entire squad around. I turned out to be absolutely wrong um, about multiple things I just mentioned there. But that being another one being that we have hope for next year that Leuven was kind of urging to play every single game last year, and perhaps they both learned from that. But also, he's got a full season under his belt physically. He knows what it's going to take out of him, as you you were saying there, Brendan. And so, maybe he can plan ahead better. Maybe he knows he needs, it's more of a marathon than he thought, and he just needs to uh, be ready for that, and maybe they manage his minutes better. Uh, Just like maybe the whole team on top of that. Yeah, in injuries aside, that's one thing that I think we are going to need to focus on as this season starts and progresses, are squad rotations. Because Roman Berkey and Klaus are other guys you can point to. Of If Klaus hadn't been hurt, he would have probably played every single game, similar to Leuven. He's that type of a player. Roman Berkey spoke at the end of the season about just how wore out, how just mentally and physically drained he was coming off of... Uh, Borussia Dortmund season or two where he just didn't play, right? And to jump right back into it with City 2 and the season that he had in 22 and then playing a full season every single game and and not being given any reprieve. So whether it's Berkey or any other player, I think we can expect to see more rotation, but that's a good thing for this, this City team. We know what happened last year in the hot start and cooling off as the season progressed. If you want to reverse that or spread spread the wealth, so to speak, you're going to need to have more consistent rotation to keep guys fresh. And with that comes the need to have quality throughout the lineup and to have the next man up mentality permeate deeper in the quality that you can raise up. Looking at some of the some of the lower guys on the depth, whether you have Akil Watts or Jake Nerwinski on the right side, whether you have maybe 
Sam Adeneron, Nico Joachini, Klaus, they're all going to need to be interchangeable to not lose the quality that you have in the rotation they're going to need throughout the year. I look for Bradley Carnell to employ a lot more different uh, players throughout. I know we had a lot of different lineups, but they were by necessity. Mm -hmm. Even with healthy players, I look for a lot more rotation this year just to keep guys fresh. Agree. Matt Baker, Phil Grooms with us. It's our year-ending roundtable here on the Big 550 KTRS Soccer in the Lou. To that end, Matt, couple different, couple different points. One being, it felt like there were moments last year where it felt like this team, they, not only did they flip the switch on, but they were so amped to play. The, the Sporting KC games, uh, the, the Cincinnati game, there were, there were moments where it, it, it looked like they were so amped to play. And other games later in the year where maybe they weren't as much. And couple that with at the start of the year, it felt like they it was just go, go, go every week. And it felt like every single game, and especially for an expansion team, you can kind of understand that and trying to accomplish something that had never been accomplished before. But it felt like every week, in a way, they were playing their own MLS Cup championship, their own a, a game that meant so much. It had so much massive implication. You kind of got a sense that they really, that it, it did mean a lot to this group to be be setting these new standards for expansion teams. But I wonder now, going into year two. Are you able to? You don't. There aren't games where you don't try. But instead of just going through the roof in one game and then backing it off in another, can you find a way to be more steady throughout the year? Where something you said earlier, Phil, where where maybe you're not running out of gas come September and October. I just wonder now if if if. Minute management, load management, if you will, can can be part of this equation as we now learn what an MLS and these guys again learn what an MLS schedule uh, really means. I would, you know, I think Bradley Carnell would naturally irk at that possibility because I don't think it's in his style to play a game anything but 110%. And so he expects that from the team. And when they didn't give it, we heard from Carnell after almost every single game that, boy, the guys just weren't on on the tip of their spear on this game or something like that. And so um, I don't know. I, I think going at it hard from the start is something that's just in this team's nature. And I do think that the style of play, this was said last year to doubt St. Louis City, but I do think it's true to some degree that a pressing team will do better in the beginning of the season because you know, defenders aren't ready to pass out of the back under yeah. a, a mass amount of pressure that the City provides. And so I do think they need to hit the ground running and somehow find a way to mix that with rotating the roster, watching you know how tired they are and those sort of things. But... And I, and I wonder just how much Bradley Carnell is going to be willing to change up the style that St. Louis has, especially mid to later in the season. It, it's another opportunity for learning and growing. He himself, as a first-year head coach, you know there are a lot of takeaways that he's going to have in how he managed the club down the stretch, how he was adapting not just in personnel changes, in substitutions, but the overall tactical approach. There was a big a big complaint that we couldn't adjust our styles especially in that series against Sporting Kansas City when we were when we saw a different look from Sporting and we were forced to possess more that was a pretty consistent 
uh, complaint throughout the season is that if teams gave us the ball, we just didn't know what to do with it. And we weren't able to break down low blocks and, and we, we weren't able to possess in the final third if we needed to. And, and I don't think we can rely on forcing our style throughout every single game or even an overwhelming amount of games, especially now that the cards are on the table. Teams know the, the, the tendencies that St. Louis players have, the tendencies that Bradley Carnell's style has. So it's the question is going to be, and I, maybe the preseason will give us an opportunity to see a little bit firsthand or glimpses of them at least, but how is, how is Carnell's approach to the team going to be different, if at all? If at all. Whether formational-wise or... In, in just their approach. And we might not see it early, early in the season, but I do think that that's going to be something to watch for because we can't rely on a five-win start to the season, this season of all seasons, mm. where we start with Champions Cup as our first competitive match, and we have so much fixture congestion with that tournament before we get into everything else throughout the season. You're going to need to have different styles, different ways that you can find to win. And here's the difference, and I feel like there will be less pressure less on the shoulders of Bradley and Lutz and the players if they start 5 and 0 it's hey you're 5 and 0 awesome instead of you're 5 and 0 if you're 6 and 0 no expansion team has done this if you're 6 and 0 and then you're 7 they got that every week yeah every week in the spring and rightfully so it was a huge story but suddenly it will be framed differently and and I do think it mattered to them and I do think they wore that and wore it as a badge of honor and knew this was a big deal I think taking that off their plate is going to matter this year in year two and it, and it's subconscious and it's not what's happening there on the field of play per se but not having to deal with that hanging over this team I, I do think it's going to matter yeah, and not having to. I mean, the only thing they're really going to have to fight against is the perception of the sophomore slump. And and True. they yeah. they have some things working in their favor to the narrative of that, which is Champions Cup. No team has really been successful right. right out of the gate when you have to when you have to incur Champions Cup as well. Even even as you finish that up, LAFC struggled this season right after Champions Cup. This summer was rough for them, but they they managed the tidal waves of that. They were able to steady the ship and come through it at the end, and that's really what City's going to have to do. It might be a different expectation for the fan base because we're not going to have, I think, massive runs of wins, but if we can come out with the points per game necessary to end in a top-four finish, that will be a massively successful season. And if we do that, I feel we will have had to learn enough to then have our first playoff win. You know, those kinds of things in the far future. But it's thinking about the season as a whole as opposed to just what could happen at the beginning because it's going to be a markedly different year. Guys, as we reach the end of this first hour and tie a bow around 2023, one player that you were particularly excited about that flew under the radar really emerged and maybe more so emerged down the stretch that we think can take an even bigger step in in 2024 is there maybe one maybe two guys I would actually say he still hasn't emerged yet and when I was down on Leuven I was extremely high on Thomas Ostrock who's you know a winger slash um, attacking midfielder yeah. he really popped up in a lot of substitute appearances throughout the season he's definitely gotten St. Louis more than one win throughout the season um, by scoring an extra goal at the end um, and I just don't think he really came into his own quite yet but he as Matt mentioned the five-year plan Ostrock is definitely one of those players who has not even come close to peaking and I think he's got a, a very high ceiling. And I think if not this next season, 
um, the following season, he's going to be a pretty big player for City. Talk about production per minute in basketball. I feel like when he was out there, like his production when he's actually on the pitch was high. Like yeah. he, he delivered yeah. a lot for this team when he actually did play. Matt, a guy you identify? I'm going to say AZ Jackson, and it's it, he may seem like a player who was always there and who had a successful season as a whole, but he started out with City too. He didn't really come into his own until halfway through the season against San Jose Earthquakes in a match where City rotated heavily, brought in Sam Adeneron, AZ Jackson, Josh Yarrow, and Akil Watts, and then they started the run. And when other players came back to their positions, you had Jake Nerwinski come back, you had Joachim Nilsson, Tim Parker take center back, Klaus came back at striker. AZ was there pretty reliably throughout the back half of the season, but there were there were concerns about some parts of his game, the crispness in certain areas. He definitely had the speed, he definitely had the the likability factor, but I looked for him to be a little better skillful with handling the ball and with able to be a, a distributor as well as taking the ball in 1v1s. And I think next year, with all the other conversations around his possible future, he's definitely a player for me to watch. I'd AZ, I'd AZ as my 1A. My 1 would be Jabul Oblam, and I feel like he his importance, I feel like when the team was playing at its best, he was playing at its best. But there's plenty of times you watch him like, what the heck is he doing? You know, he, he also seemed to not play as well when the when the weather was like really, really hot. It's like, well, what he does look quite right out there and I feel like there's if he can get you know connected completely to this team and you feel like he's he can take that next step he has not arrived at this point in my estimation but it feels like he's got a chance to be somebody really special when he puts it all together. And the benefit that Blom has this year is he's going to be challenged more. He's going to be needing yeah, to fight yeah. for his job in certain scenarios with Chris Durkin coming on board, who plays True. a similar position. And, and in, in scenarios where you have a single pivot, it's going to be one of those two. And so to have somebody challenging Blom is only going to be better for him. And his mental toughness, mental consistency, because yes, he did have some physical problems throughout the year, but it felt like his brain was affected by every one of those things last year yeah. as well. His talent is there. He just has to like, make it last through the whole season. And he's such a good player. And we'll talk more about that acquisition of uh, of Chris Durkin coming up. Our next hour, our roundtable, full hour, full one more hour with uh, with Phil and with Matt. It's our soccer in the Lou year in review, year ender, if you will, on the Big Five Fifty. Another hour here with uh, Matt Baker and Phil Grooms. It is our Soccer in the Lou year-ending roundtable on the Big 550 KTRS. And we've kind of tied a bow around 2023, and we're now looking ahead to 2024. So much has happened now in the last few weeks, and it comes fast and furious. As we said at the uh, in our in our first segment with, uh, with Matt and Phil, um, you, you get a sense that the offseason, it is very, very fast, and training camp is quickly approaching. But guys, we've uh, we, we've seen a lot here in the last few weeks, and there has been some roster churn, some movement. And Matt, you mentioned uh, Chris Durkin there at, at the end of last segment, coming over from DC United, and yeah, plays the uh, you know. Uh, a similar game to that of Jabulo Blom, and you move a couple of pieces out, in, in, including Jared Stroud, who was incredibly productive here in year one for City SC. But hey, I, I'm all about trading pieces when their value might be at its highest, and who knows? That might. I hope I hope there are bigger things for Jared, but that might be his peak, and you move him for a really 
intriguing piece. Uh, Durkin looks like somebody that uh, has got a lot of his best days ahead of him as well. Yeah, there's a lot to like about this move. Uh, from the players that we shipped out, I think we sold high on both Bartlett and Stroud, at least yeah. higher than where we acquired them from. Totally. Bartlett is just a trialist. I mean, everything that he provided with us last year, two straight months of starting center back while Kyle Heber moved to left back, that was fantastic. Jared Stroud, a career year, 10 points, five goals, five, five assists, and that was another sell high. A smart move by Lutz. He was a Carnell guy. He played. I think he played his best career uh, years under Bradley Carnell. That seems pretty obvious. Austin was a downtime for him. Hopefully, they both excel in D.C., but what we ended up getting from D.C. in Chris Durkin, I think he's worth both of those players. I think he's worth the 300000 in GAM. He had a, a myriad of movements from from D.C. over t- across the pond and then back with Houston, D.C., some movement. He was their youngest homegrown signing. He's a U-22 initiative player for us, which is huge for the salary cap implications that that has. So no matter what his salary is, it only hits our books at 200000 for the remainder of his contract, which should be this year and next. And just to have him in that defensive midfielder position provides more stability, more depth, and it allows you to know going in that you're not going to have to rely on Indiana Vasilev to drop back in the central defensive midfield. You're not going to have to run out Miguel Perez right from the get-go if he's not ready for it. You're not going to have to mix and match all these things if Blom goes down or something happens or if he gets called up to AFCON. You know, those kinds of considerations are, are exciting to know and to have the quality that Durkin can provide. He was a, a regular starter for D.C., a youth national team consistent player. Uh, to have him on your roster provides you with a player with great vision, with great ball handling. He can make those long progressive passes, and he can be more of a box-to-box if you need him to. He scored some goals. He's He's been involved in the attack a little bit more than Blome is used to, so he provides some positional flexibility, too, where if you want to have a double pivot of Durkin and Blome at the same time, maybe Leuven moves up to your 10 for periods. You know, it, it, it enables you to be more creative with this depth that we talked about in the previous segment, but also it just gives you some more top-to-bottom caliber depth that, that you really need when you're talking about improving the overall roster. Yeah, and, and he started out as a youth player as kind of like the next Michael Bradley, a deep-lying playmaker, someone who can ping a ball everywhere. And that's something that is definitely valuable to City because he still has that in his toolbox. But he also, as Matt said, went across to Europe, was in um, at the, the Belgian club St. Truiden at the same time as, as Jacques Klaus, is a, is a fun fact there. Um, but he did end up coming back. But, you know, he, he gained a lot of experience. I think he's probably a much more veteran player now. Um, and we'll be able to get through a season, all the things we talked about with preparing your body, he's going to be ready for all of that. And I totally agree that he's got defensive tools like Blome. He's box-to-box in a lot of ways, kind of like Vasilev can be, but he's not quite as extreme players as those two. He's somewhere in between, and so he's going to be able to mix and match. And the man's 23 years old. He is younger than Stroud and Bartlett, and he's going to grow into something better. Lastly, just that European pedigree. I had forgotten until recently on on the City Voice podcast that um, that AZ Jackson and Adeneron both spent time in Europe, just like almost every player we've been bringing in. And I think that's something that Lutz values uh, for all the things we kind of mentioned there. Well, something Matt mentioned, and I, I love this about Lutz because I feel like he, he checks this box every time. Buy low, 
sell high. Yeah. I feel like they're near the end of the year, he bought super low on Anthony Marcanic. This guy comes in, you know, second team from from Colorado, right? And immediately pays off dividends, logging huge minutes for the team. And I don't know how much that carries over to next year, but it certainly had a value. And you got him for almost nothing. Uh, and, and now you move Jared Stroud, who, uh, and, and like you said, Matt Bartlett as well, both guys uh, really bringing, you know, having some value, and, and you flip them when their value is super high. And I feel like that is something Lutz has done a bunch. And, and obviously there's some, been some criticism out there about the team not, at least so far, hasn't demonstrated the ability to spend in the in the high rent district of the league. But here's a you know here's a sporting director that's shown he knows how to derive the most value. And even on the guys you watch, and I know we all you know, you, you, you kind of fall in love with rooting for your guys. And I think he's shown the ability. We, we this guy we're, we're a big fan of him, but we're. If we need to, we're going to flip them. We're going to flip them for value and, and maybe more value coming back in return. Probably a benefit of having a sporting director who's been to every continent possible to play and has so much experience in scouting. He he has his guys. He's passionate about players who can fit in his culture and his system, but he knows the reality of the sport. He knows that you bring guys in, and whether it's for their benefit to grow or for the team's benefit to improve upon themselves, he's not afraid to pull the trigger. And it, it says a lot, what he did with Jared Stroud in particular, that he they brought him back under contract, but they're not saying, okay, because you had such a great year, we're going we're gonna to rest on that pedigree and we're going to hope that you improve or at least stay the same and run you out in that same left-mid position. And, and the fact that he's able to make these maneuvers thinking long-term like that, about a player like Jared Stroud especially, that says a lot about what his mindset overall is with the team. And I look for that as, this, as the preseason progresses, as the offseason continues into the transfer window especially, in what kind of moves he might be making and even eyes that he might have on shipping guys out now. A lot of the guys who have who have we've heard rumors on moves deal with guys like Josh Yarrow, AZ Jackson, Sam Adeneron. They've all had a rumor here and there about yeah. other teams being yeah. interested, if not St. Louis looking to shop them. So there are there are more moves that could yet be made on some of these fan favorite players. But I do trust that it's all for the betterment of the team. And that's what Lutz, the short answer to the short turnaround in the season, only having a month off, the answer to that is Lutz Fennenstiel is a sporting director that is always prepared, always looking for deals, always looking for the next player. After he played on six of the seven continents, he became a scout for Hoffenheim in Germany. And so he's very good at that. And he came here to build a club. I mean, it's the only reason he's in MLS. He could be at much bigger clubs. He's gotten offers in the last year for much bigger clubs. He's chosen to be here. It's what he wants to spend his time doing. And I think he just loves it and yeah. is always ready to go. Is there room? Is it an, is it an indictment at all on Lutz or the franchise? That, again, so far, they haven't been willing to spend the big bucks. I don't know that anybody realistically expected them to do any different. Hmm. We're a mid-market team, and I know that there are there are obvious no- knowns about our ownership and the pockets that they have, but especially right from the get-go, it, it always has to be kept in mind just how much down payment they made on this club, not just from the first-year roster salary, but in the expansion fee to MLS, in uh, buying the stadium, the land, all that stuff, the privately paid-for infrastructure that they built up. That entire 34-acre 
a, a footprint that's in downtown West that was bought and paid for by the Taylor family, by the club ownership. And so there, it, it buys you grace in my eyes before you worry about spending too big. But if you can prove to be a successful mid-market spend team with the ways that you go about that, then I don't have any big concerns. And in fact, the DPs that we brought in last year, I think they probably would have gotten us one or two more wins had they remained healthy. So the, the identification process overrides the need to splash cash on the table to me. The story that we were going to be a mid-table, or not a mid-table, a mid-level club as far as spending, it was precluded before we played a single game, before really the full team was even built. We were told that this is the way it was going to be. And we were also told they're going to build up the culture of the team, and they're going to build up the academy of the team, that we were always going to start relying on that. And again, that five-year plan. It's not fully built up yet, and so it might be a little rough in these first seasons. We had a great year last year, but as we saw, we weren't deep enough, and we weren't able to just dip wholeheartedly into that academy quite yet because it hasn't been ramped up. But over the years, you know, if, if you get upset about um, not having enough spending with City, and um, I think that's fair. If that if that's what you want is a big market club, I think that's we're never going to be that. And Lutz doesn't apologize for that. He promises excitement. You know, and all the things that they delivered last year. But also, on the other hand, we got to look at MLS's roster rules and the fact that we're going to have all these kids coming, coming up from our academy. The UPSL team just beat someone seven to one the other day. That's our U21 team, and we have all these kids, all this talent that could come up and help us out through the season. But the roster rules aren't allowing us to just pull any kid up, however many times we want or need. Quote, need is, is a big one I want to emphasize there. And so I think that's something that we have been wanting from MLS to change the rules. They've been complaining about roster conge- uh, congestion. And so maybe it's time to start opening those, those rules up a little bit. It'll help City more than it'll help those big market teams, I'll tell you that. Well, we were, I think, curious to see how City would utilize the Super Draft this year because they did not have a first-round pick. And Guys, it was uh, it was last week where City trades up into the draft, into the first round, I should say, into the number seventeen position. And Matt, do you think they had their eye on the young man from Wake Forest all along to trade up and and land him there? I, honestly, I have to say no. And it's for one specific reason, and, and they called a timeout right before they selected. Um, Jose Kajima. And I, I don't know the specifics. I wasn't in the war room, but you have to say that when you trade up, and there was there was some thoughts in the super draft as you're watching it, where I think I timelined it out on my, my Twitter account, but it was that uh, City traded up and they had their number 17 spot. They traded 75000 in allocation money to Nashville. New York Red Bulls traded up from their, I think, 13th position to 11th, something small. New York Red Bulls selected Aiden O'Connor, who was a pressing-minded center back. It was it was the obvious New York Red Bulls, St. Louis City style connection that you can make there. And then shortly thereafter, St. Louis calls a timeout. And then they select Jose Kojima. Now, looking back on it retroactively, it looks like a steal. MLSsoccer.com gave St. Louis an A grade in the draft because they drafted him. And the only reason that he fell that far is because he's going to have the international slot tag on him. He comes from Japan. He moved from Japan, I believe, when he was 12. He went to the IMG Academy. He went to Wake Forest. And then he graduated and was selected by City. 
in Kojima, they get one of the one of the if not the most versatile players in the entire draft. That was the word versatile was said over and over and over by Kojima himself when he gave his interview to Kalen Kyle, and th- he's a center center mid by trade, but. He can play fullback. He can play both wings. The ability for him to be flexible in nature lends itself to Lutz and Bradley's style so well because we saw we saw Indiana Vasilev playing all kinds of positions. We saw Jared Stroud play all kinds of positions. Kyle Hebert. Everybody moves in this system, and the more pl- more places you can position yourself, the more valuable you are. And to see how how much of a student of the game. He seems to be where he came into the draft when when teams were contacting him and he had put together basically proposals of how he would fit into every single team system scouting reports for himself. This is the kind of student of the game mind that you really get a sense that when Lutz talks about culture and bringing in guys who fit the system and the organization and are just good people on and off the pitch. Jose Kojima really seems to fit that bill. And so there's a lot to like about this pick. Seems real impressive. Yeah. Impressive young man. Yeah, I don't know if I can add to what Matt said. He seems really, really talented. And I think he's just going to be, unless he's sold off for a profit of some sort, I think he's going to be a favorite and a long-term player for City. Well, I think people will instantly look back at what they did in the Super Draft last year with, I believe, Owen O'Malley, who's already been already been waived. It, it's the... The super, the super draft in the MLS might be as big a crapshoot of all the big five professional sports out there where it's – if you land somebody like like it looks like City has here, that there might be a real steal. Maybe you do get somebody that can contribute right away. Yeah, and, and they said about this draft more than last year and the year before that, and even the year before that um, – it was just hard to pick who was going to be the one that everybody fights over. And I think Aiden O'Connor might have been one of the only ones where it was obvious that multiple teams wanted yeah. him. Uh, every other player in the draft, I don't know if there was like a consensus top one, two, three, four, five. It was pretty mixed based on your team's style and your team's scouting preferences. So it was a, it was an interesting one in that way, especially. And part of it was because this was the first year that the Super Draft was opened up to underclassmen. Mm. Sophomores and juniors were eligible for this for the first time. And about six Six or seven of the picks before St. Louis City went to underclassmen. So you're you're adding that level of variability into an already difficult group to project. And you 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 saw on the board, Jose Kojima was predicted to go anywhere from top ten to first round, just in general. So everybody, nobody really had a good sense of where a lot of people were going. And and so to see St. Louis, in if you take a step back and look at everything that went into the Super Draft for them, you have to go back, like you said, Brendan, to Owen O'Malley and the fact that they selected him where at the time they said he was our number one the entire time. Hmm. When we had this first pick, we traded out because we felt we could come back in and still get him. And that was their, that was their mantra this, that whole time. And we saw what happened with that mindset. We saw that he didn't see a single minute. We didn't. I don't even think he appeared on a, a game day roster one single time for City. And then he was let go at the end of the year. And right. in midway through the season, we trade our first round super draft pick for Anthony Markanic. And so you're seeing a devaluation that much further. So to me, this pick to trade up uh, from your second round to the first game day or day of the draft, it really says a lot about their willingness to invest in this kind of player, whether he was their number one or number two. Very fascinating and a very interesting look is the draft now in the rearview mirror and roster management and construction continues. 
But I want to take a look, guys, at uh, what 2024 looks like, the schedule, the fixtures, and right out of the box, the uh, the Champions Cup will uh, do that when we come back. It's our Soccer in the Lou year-ender roundtable on the Big 550. We continue here, Soccer in the Lou, as we've got the... Flavor Footy fellas in the studio with us with uh, Matt Baker and Phil Grooms, and uh, we look forward to having them back on the air. Weekend's walking you up, and we're going to be able to walk up to some pretty early-in-the-year matches as uh, City, part of the CONCACAF Champions Cup fellas. And, and we learned last week that, uh, well, we knew Houston in the mix, but we've got the schedule, and it's going to start pretty quick and again that leads you into uh, training camp starting a lot sooner in the month of January to get you ready for the Champions Cup and then that will merge into the start of uh, the MLS season that we can talk about here in a few minutes but uh, Matt I'll start with you Champions Cup it could take you deep into the month of uh, into the month of June, I believe, if you're able to make a deep enough run. But uh, City will get Houston to start it off, and the possibility of maybe meeting MLS Cup champion Columbus if you're able to win that opening series. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot that's going into this beginning of the season. In one one regard, I think it was fortuitous the way things shook out because we have as long of a preseason as we could have possibly hoped for, but the fact that we aren't playing in the Champions Cup until February 20th, the first leg against Houston at City Park. On the other hand, you do have the whole fixture congestion that is occurring at the beginning of the season. We have three home games within two weeks or so there between February 20th and March 2nd. We have at least two straight weeks of four matches before things could potentially go back to a sense of normalcy if we're bounced in the first round. But yeah, like you said, Brandon, if we if we go on to face the Columbus crew in the second round of the Champions Cup, that was in the next two weeks. So then you're looking at uh, eight matches in four weeks type of a scenario. Things just get really heavy really quick. And I think that's something that at least we've known about it for a while. At least we've had the opportunity to plan for that. This isn't something that just all of a sudden occurred to us. Lutz and Bradley knew they were going to be facing this. They've been able to game plan, war room these scenarios and how they're going to how they're going to run out a roster for Champions Cup, how they're going to start the MLS season. And I think it ties back to me to those expectations that we talked about earlier on and knowing what you want to prioritize early in the season. I personally hope they make they try to make a deep run in Champions Cup. And from a from an outside looking in perspective, that means you run out your best eleven at the time in Champions Cup. If you need to rotate for MLS action, even the opening game, so be it. This is a a thirty four game marathon that you're running here. And if we start off in the MLS regular season taking maybe three points out of the first three games, that's okay if we're progressing in Champions Cup. You know, I, I don't I don't look at it as a zero sum game, but I do. I do want to see some kind of accomplishment early if it's going to mean uh, less of a quick start in MLS. Completely agree. That's exactly what I would do. I really love the Champions Cup. I think it's such a cool tournament, and I think it means a lot. It means a lot to me as a fan that St. Louis is in the conversation, hopefully with other teams in North America and the Caribbean, in quality, and that they can compete with them and perhaps beat them. Um, And so 
to me, that's a much cooler tournament than even League's Cup because it includes all of North America. And so I do. I hope they go all in on that. And we kind of talked about using that rotated team. Um, we talked about AZ Jackson being a part of that in the past. Um, team Hungary, just all the hungry players, all the young players that need time. And even if we get a draw or a loss or two more in the beginning of the season, it's worth it. You, you got to put your best foot forward in, in the toughest competition you're given. And for me, that's that's the Champions Cup. And I think it, the fact that it, at least uh, the lion's share of this tournament starts at the beginning of the MLS season. And again, if you are prioritizing things, I think it allows you to prioritize Champions Cup a little more with it being at the start of the MLS season and potentially help you ramp up into a better run of form right at the start that you've got you know, really meaningful games to have to think about, at least one in front of uh, the start of the MLS season. And I don't know, maybe that puts you in a better spot to start early. We talk about how hot St. Louis was last year. There is a, uh, there's a timeline here where you could remain that same kind of hot, but in Champions Cup. Yeah. And so yeah. if if you want to prioritize Champions Cup, it does you it does provide the opportunity to dedicate every resource, dedicate every time you need to to be successful. And like you said, Brendan, that wraps up on June second, the day after we are scheduled to play Inter Miami. <laughs> and so if you look at the MLS schedule as a whole right now and how that breaks out, look at the number of matches that occur after the Inter Miami match. That's not even halfway through the season. So if you can just toe the line on being a, a playoff uh, at, at the 8-9 position, mm-hmm. just barely holding on to a playoff position through the first, up until beginning of June, but you're, you're making that epic Champions Cup run. That is more than enough to satisfy anybody. Everybody's, you can focus on that, you can maintain in MLS, and then you can still pivot over to the MLS regular season and make that push. How many times last year towards the end of the season did we talk, unfortunately, about Sporting Kansas City's run and how their season turned out where they couldn't win a match in their first 11 games, and then they went on to have this incredible run from May on to the end of the season? That could be how St. Louis approaches this MLS season. It doesn't have to be that drastic if we don't start off as bad, but the the timelines match up to where you can prioritize Champions Cup. You can hold on for dear life in the MLS regular season, and then when Champions Cup is over, you kick it into high gear in MLS regular season. And if there's a blemish to last year's season for City, obviously we know you get bounced in the playoffs quick, but they didn't play well in the League's Cup. They don't last very long in the Open Cup. So in terms of of tournament play, and I'm not sure that that you, you can correlate it, but maybe, again, pushing all your chips into the middle in tournament play to start, I I don't know, maybe that betters your mindset for when MLS Cup rolls around again in uh, in October and November that you've you've just kind of set your mind into a place where this is going to be something we've handled and we've played well. And the cool thing is, if it doesn't work out with Champions Cup, there are just far too many opportunities that St. Louisans are going to be excited to watch our team in. So, you know, MLS is just such this thing where you put your best foot forward, and if it doesn't work out, well, okay, move on to the next thing, which is MLS Cup, or Open Cup, or Leagues Cup. There are so many opportunities for them to to do well. Um, You know, why not just 
see where life takes you this yeah. season. But also, I think there needs to be an emphasis on peaking at the right time. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that Peter Vermees was able to be patient with his you know, bad run of form at the beginning of the season there. He knew that you can go from zero to hero in the playoffs system in MLS Cup. And so, you know, there's just so many opportunities. And I think no matter what we're dealt, making sure that we can make a nice push at the end of the season, no matter what, is, is important to me at least. And as we record this, there is uh, still a gaping hole in the U.S. Open Cup that's not going to feature MLS teams. And, and for the moment, it's not going to feature MLS Next Pro teams that are directly attached to their MLS counterparts. I guess the independent MLS Next Pro teams would have a chance, would still play in the U.S. Open Cup. But um, I, I feel like there is a lot of excitement around Champions Cup would be a lot of excitement because there has been for years around the U.S. Open Cup, but it would be the League's Cup that's owned by the MLS that would seem to kind of be the wrench in this whole conversation. And even if by the time we run this and maybe the, the news is good and MLS is back in the Open Cup, it would still seem like League's Cup would be the priority for MLS because they own and operate it, right? For MLS as an organization, yes. You, you can see the corporate... You can see the corporate money and where it's being splashed in driving the priorities. You can see the fact that League's Cup is aired on MLS Season Pass, and Apple has a vested interest in League's Cup versus Champions Cup, U.S. Open Cup. And so from what MLS wants clubs to prioritize, you can see an easy marker towards League's Cup. You can see an obvious desire by fans for a tournament like the U.S. Open Cup to be prioritized because of the romanticism behind a, a amateur semi-pro team being able to rise up and play a top-tier team just like we see in Europe in every single country that that FIFA has a footprint and and not just from that romantic aspect but it just provides so much to the U.S. soccer infrastructure and what the U.S. Open Cup can give for these lower league teams. It's it's a rising tide will lift all boats scenario. And and so when I see what I want St. Louis City to prioritize this season, you know I, I don't know how it's going to shake out by the time the MLS regular season starts because the the sequence of events has been uh, such a, a fairy tale type thing and it's just a, a fiction, not a fairy tale, a fictional story where you have MLS dictating the fact that they're pulling out their next pro teams, the U.S. Open Cup. You have U.S. Soccer responding with, oh, no, you're not. We're not granting you that waiver. And and MLS saying, we're continuing the dialogue. So MLS is clearly looking for an out to this tournament as as an end result to their fixture congestion that they've created with the League's Cup tournament. And I don't know if there's going to be a final answer in 2024 because at the end of the day, League's Cup is not going anywhere. That seems pretty apparent. You know, the schedule release, League's Cup has not released a schedule for 2024, but you could see a clear gap in the schedule between around late July, July 21st through August 23rd. That's the gap that League's Cup going to be in again. And MLS is going to push their teams to play as hard as you can in that. And if they can figure out a way to make that their focus, they're going to do it. Yeah, it's all about following the money, right? As as Matt laid out there, you know, MLS is going to choose League's Cup every single time, and they've been looking for an excuse to get out of Open Cup for a long time, and and that's okay from an MLS perspective. But soccer is kind of a weird sport, right? Brennan, you guys were talking about earlier in the show about uh, Mizzou versus City, who had the best season, and and those two sports are just so different. In fact, soccer is so much different from every other American sport. Yeah. In that, you know, MLB, NFL, NHL, they just have their cup 
competitions or their regular season competitions with playoffs, and that's it. Well, in soccer, there's been this Open Cup that has just been this awesome, romantic, historical um, competition, the oldest competition in the United States, um, for soccer at least. I don't know if I have that right. But basically, unfortunately for MLS, we here in St. Louis have been part of that since the beginning. That whole Open Cup thing has been part of why, you know, would they have known that there were all these talented players on the hill in the 50s that were going to be playing in the World Cup against and getting a draw against England if the Open Cup wasn't there to measure each other around the country about talent levels? St. Louis has had 10 teams win the Open Cup over the years. And you know, it's just such an important tournament to St. Louis especially. And I think... Soccer fans all over the country, whether they're a part of MLS, USL, semi-pro, amateur teams get to compete in this tournament. It's such a beautiful tournament, and for them to perhaps put one of their own brand new artificial-feeling cup competitions up against Open Cup and to maybe pull out completely their best players is very disingenuous to a St. Louis and especially. And I feel very strongly about it, and um, I know what I would choose if I had to pick one over the other. Well, it's just... it's. uh it's a contrived tournament here by the MLS, and obviously, it's one that they're gonna they're gonna push, they're gonna back. And as Matt, you said, it's not going anywhere. Um, if there, you can find a way to uh, to coexist, it would be amazing. But it, you know, reality starts to set in a little bit where you look at the the heart of the Open Cup. You look at the month of May. There's five MLS fixtures in there for City right now. There's six in the month of June. You've got five again in the month of July, when the U.S. Open Cup is is chugging right along. It 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 again just a realist. Uh, I've got to look at it and say where where do you fit the games in? And that that to me would be a lot easier if if the League's Cup didn't exist, but it does, and uh, and here we are. Yeah, there there's a there's a high degree of the a lot of the. MLS did this to themselves. Yeah, and and yes, it, the league's cup is garnering them more money with Apple, and they're going down that path. But you can't cry about fixture congestion when you're you're separating a month out from everything and just introducing more matches. So yes, April, May, June, April and May is in particular going to be difficult months because of the U.S. Open Cup if MLS teams do in fact play this year uh, because of those midweek matches in between everything we've seen from the regular season release. But you know, I I just have I have a hard time really having sympathy for that line of thinking when you could look to a lot of other alternatives in how to resolve this issue. It doesn't have to be as black and white as just cutting a tournament out cold turkey that has existed in this country for over 100 years. You could look inward and make some pretty simple roster rule maneuvers to make it palatable to go continue with this tournament. MLS has cited the the desire to develop their younger players, introduce more high-level tournament caliber. That's a that's been a key component in the past few weeks of what they've been saying as a reason to pull out of the US Open Cup. There's one simple thing that they could do that would really take care of that and it would be to open up the ability for their first team MLS to pull up any number of next pro players, any number of affiliated players to wear their first team crest and compete. If this sounds like it's just devaluing the first team crest, 
then you have to look to Europe on how a lot of those teams are handling their their domestic cup competitions. In England, they have the FA Cup, they have the Caribou Cup. The Caribou Cup is ongoing right now, and you're seeing players who don't ever see time in the Premier League see time in these cups. Yeah. It is almost no different to what you could be doing here. You could be seeing guys like Johnny Klein, Michael Wenzel play for City. How exciting would that be to see them play for City in the U.S. Open Cup wearing the first team badge if there were less restrictions on who you could pull up for that particular tournament? You could leave every rule in place for your MLS regular season. You don't have to change salary considerations. You don't have to change the number of roster slots. But for non-MLS regular season competitions, you could even specify U.S. soccer-led competitions, club competitions. You open up the ability to bring up any number of players. Boom. Fixture congestion solved because then it's up to the managers on how they want to manage. If they don't want to pull any of their first-team players, they don't have to. They can do exactly what MLS wants the teams to be able to do in developing their players, but do it under the first-team badge like every other club in the world. And that's part of the magic of the cop is playing those young players. It's part of what I look forward to in, in England. Someone like Manchester City would never play their youth if it wasn't for something like the Carabao Cup or the FA yeah. Cup. And so I look forward to seeing those up-and-coming youth players for teams like Manchester City, and um, it's no different here in MLS. We get to see our youth kids play against more veteran USL teams in a lot of ways. Guys that are really like big, strong players who probably could play in MLS um, but don't get to. You get to see that really fun matchup in the early rounds, and then you get to see the magic of everyone caring at the end and really putting in their best players, the best foot forward, in order to get into something like uh, the Champions Cup um, through the U.S. Open Cup. It's all part of it, and I really love what Matt is suggesting. The rule changes. It's a win-win situation, because all of that creates more and more magic. What doesn't create magic is not giving anyone the option to send who they want to send to whatever cup is is available. And again, that's a weird soccer thing, but um, it's part of what I love about the sport. A lot of passion you guys show on this, and I love it. I know you guys will uh, be talking about it as we go throughout the year and see how this all develops and and, and when we'll g- we'll get a resolution in some way, shape, or form, and we'll see. Hopefully, it's one that everybody uh, everybody can jump on board with. But for now, um, we're sort of at a stalemate. With that, guys, with just a few minutes left in the show, uh, quick look at the MLS schedule itself. City opens up February 24th. Real Salt Lake here in town. Then you move into the month of March and you get New York FC here. Uh, no no Red Bulls on the schedule from what I can tell? <laughs> no, that uh, you, the Eastern Conference teams, they come and go. We're not going to be playing all of them all the time. And so to have NYC FC uh, come to town, that'll be, that'll be fairly exciting. Be very exciting. Um, anything stand out? Just the way the the schedule is, is sort of structured here, guys. Some, we're, I think we're all checking our flights to Miami in June. It's around <laughs> my wife's birthday, and it's the one thing she said about the schedule today when it dropped. And so we might be trying to fly to Miami. Interesting to be able to play someone like FC Cincinnati as well, um, because it went so well this last year, but it was a weird day, right? And um, them being so good in MLS Cup play last year in the way they play, it's a fun matchup. I, I like the Miami matchup and the timing because the one concern that I think we all had when we saw Miami June 1st, international windows, Messi, Argentina. Like, how is that going to break down? And thankfully, the closest international window to June 1st is June 3rd through the 11th, where Argentina will be in action. So, thankfully, we don't have that to worry about. Messi, if healthy, will likely be playing and be playing against City. 
that's the most exciting thing, I think. It's the most uh, different from last year. We still play Sporting KC twice, this time twice in Kansas. We still play the Chicago Fire. That's something good to see. So there's still this familiarity with some of the more local Eastern Conference teams. I really like that. There's no Nashville. There's still no Columbus. Hmm. But MLS keeping some of these regional rivalries yeah. here within the next, last year or so. I really enjoy seeing that. And I, I see some different time slots here. So I see some some more midweek matches. We've seen some of the schedules that other teams have some more midweek matches. There's some different time slots on Saturdays and Sundays. So I'm interested to see kind of what the broadcast and presentation ends up breaking out as. I would love to watch more MLS matches live than we did last year, and I think this starts to get to that. I haven't seen the numbers break down yet on the percentages in each slot, but that was one feedback that we heard last year that it seems like there's a little bit of a difference this year. Guys, uh, I can't wait to get it started all over again and fly over footy back here on the Big 550 KTRS in the uh, in, in 2024. and. Talking about year two of this franchise, uh, great having you guys here, Phil, Matt. Thank you for for joining us on this year-ending roundtable. And uh, and guys, enjoy the rest of the holidays. And again, a couple weeks. Here we go. Training camp will uh, will be here. Right back at it. Thanks for having us, Brendan. It's Thanks, been a blast Brandon. this year. Love it. Phil Grooms, Matt Baker, Brendan Weesey, Soccer in the Lou. Our year-ending roundtable on the Big Five Fifty KTRS.